Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. everybody oh wow it's Kristen saying hey there everybody how bizarre how bizarre where is Jenny Owen Young's you might ask well for this intro you've just got me trusty Kristen because Jenny is uh today driving across the United States of America headed to move to the northeast so you will have two hosts in the same time zone very very soon before Halloween as a matter of fact I'm here today, speaking of Halloween, to introduce you into an interview that Jenny and I did with Juliet Landau. That's right, Drusilla herself. We have the, I mean, literally the best conversation with Juliet. She is a delight. Uh, She talks to us, of course, all about her time on Buffy and on Angel and about her movie release, which is happening in just a few days on October 29th. Juliet's film is called A Place Among the Dead, and you can go to the premiere of the movie online on October 29th. All of the information is found at modernfilms.com slash A Place Among the Dead. Modern Films, by the way, uh, an all-women-run production company. So that's pretty freaking cool as well. Uh, So there's a premiere on the 29th of A Place Among the Dead. It's a really, really powerful film. And Juliet and her husband, Dev, put so much work into it. It features appearances by people you may have heard of, like Joss Whedon, Anne Rice, Gary Oldman, and so many others. And you'll hear us talk about it in the interview that you're about to listen to. A couple of quick things before we go into talking to Juliet. Uh, A slight delay on our next episode, season six, episode three, Afterlife. That was set to air on November 4th. We are holding it until November 9th, which is just the following Monday. So just a few more days, you'll have to wait for that episode. That's the next time that you'll hear from us in this feed. Uh, And this Wednesday, of course, you're going to get season three, episode two of Angel on Top. That vision thing, pretty Cordelia heavy, and you may or may not get a little segment from me talking about Lila playing golf. But listen, that's neither here nor there. Also, our live taping was unexpectedly rescheduled. So heads up, uh, if November 22nd is a good day for you, that's a Sunday, you can come on over and see our live taping then. We will be taping Season 6, Episode 5, Life Serial. All of the information, forever and ever, will be found at BufferingTheVampireSlayer.com. Again, to learn how to grab tickets to Juliet's premiere event for A Place Among the Dead, go to ModernFilms.com slash A Place Among the Dead. I am going to stop talking so that you can hear Juliet tell us all about things like press-on nails, role-playing as Spike... And why Julie Benz always knew that, of course, there was romance between Drew and Darla. Let's get the hell into this episode. Oh, 
my gosh. Wow. We are so excited. So very, very excited to be here today speaking with the one and the only Juliet Landau. Juliet, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. I'm super excited to be here. Ah, we're so excited to have you Yay. here. I feel like we've been waiting Yay. for this moment since I don't even know <laughs> when when we first met you years ago at this point. I know. I know. We've been wanting to do this forever. And when it's finally here, it's, yay. Yes. And the timing is is quite wonderful for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, it's Halloween or near to it. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and two, you have uh, a movie coming out, uh, like now, right now. Yep, yep. In in Halloween, it's actually we're having the worldwide premiere October 29th. Uh, being sponsored by Mac Cosmetics and also by New York Comic Con, then preview screening events, uh, Halloween weekend, and then the wide release. So super excited! Oh my gosh! Do you Amazing. have do you have costume? Are you dressing up for Halloween in a movie themed kind of way? <laughs> it, it's funny because uh, we were we were talking about that we're going to be doing this uh, incredible event with Tomorrow's Ghosts and screening the movie and doing the Q and A and then having all kinds of other uh, panels. And I think I will be changing. Uh, at one point in in the um, schedule of that events, and I, I've dragged Dev, my husband, into it as well. So I think we're going to dress up. What about you guys? Uh, yes, <laughs> we we are. We we actually um, we take Halloween very seriously now that we have a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. We're in season six now, and so um, there is an episode. Congratulations on that! Too. <laughs> <awesome>. Thank you. <laughs> Um, but we are for the podcast we are dressing up I believe this year as two employees of the Double Meat Palace which is the fast food restaurant that Buffy works perfect (laughs) so Julia we have obviously you know we could stay on with you for about four years and not run out of things to talk about but we want to make sure that we get to talk to you both about your time on Buffy the Vampire Slayer as Drusilla and also the movie that you made. And, and I would imagine that there's probably even overlap between those two things. So great. Great. How about we start at the begin, the very beginning, um, at least the very beginning as it pertains to Buffy? Uh, we would love to hear how you came to the show. Like, what, what's your origin story, uh, Juliet as Drusilla? <laughs> Well, it was interesting. I actually didn't audition for the role. I had a, a creative meeting, and it was with Joss, uh, David Greenwald, Gail Berman, and Marcia Shulman, who was uh, the head of casting at Fox. And it was the most fun meeting. It was just incredible. We bounced ideas back and forth. Um, Joss said that he thought that the character could be British or American. And I was saying, oh, I really think she should be British. And and he said, yes, if we can find a spike that, that can do that or is English. And I did a little bit of Drew in the room. I think I started talking to the ceiling at one point. <laughs> Really, really great. And literally before I got to my car, I was walking to my car um, and hadn't even made it from the room that that we had been meeting in. And my phone rang and my agent called and said, "Um, they want to hire you. And I said, well, I'm not even, I haven't left yet. And they said, yeah, no, they they loved you. They thought it was great. And so, so, uh, so it was, it was amazing and such a creative experience right from the get-go. It's funny because sometimes you'll audition for something, you know, 12 times and not get it or 20 times mm-hmm. and you do get it. But it was one of those things. And I had a similar thing with Tim Burton uh, on 
Ed Wood, where where it just felt like it was meant to be and sort of happened very easily. I feel like some of that, like, it makes so much sense too. so many of our listeners wrote in asking, you know, what did Juliet bring? Like, did Juliet have creative input um, on Drusilla as a character? And can you talk about that? And so many of the actors from the show who we have spoken with did not really get to have a lot of creative input. And it sounds like you did. It sounds like you really were you were in the room sort of helping to create this character. It was an incredibly collaborative experience. Um, as far as the text uh, and the writing, that was completely Joss and the team of brilliant writers. Uh, so all of the script uh, w- was was them. And then it was collaborative beyond that in terms of Drew's mannerisms and uh, the way she moved and her vocal quality and all of those aspects. And even, you know, uh, James and I both come from a theater background, so we... Uh, at least season two, we would get the scripts about a week in advance. And so we would get together and rehearse on our own. And we would come in with a lot of ideas for the blocking of the scenes, which is basically where you're moving in, in, in the scenes. And, um, most of the time they loved it and said that's great and it saved a lot of time for everyone and and we would be up and up and running so it was really a joy and even with things that you would do and you think oh well maybe it got cut out of an episode so maybe it wasn't you know they uh, Joss didn't like it or something it would end up finding its way into scripts later hmm. which was really <laughs> exciting that's amazing wow, that's, um, it, it makes sense too because she has like this very rich interior world that's sort of like overlaid, uh, you know, over the actual world. She's kind of like existing in multiple realms at once. So it just feels like there's so much more build that has to happen there for for you. Absolutely. And it was interesting because when I was first cast, I was cast and then um, they paired me with the final choices for Spike. And, um, and I had an incredibly wonderful meeting with Joss right at the beginning where he told me all of the vampire lore and the history. And he said that he had had Spike and Drew running around in his mind for 10 years uh, prior to that. So they would definitely had like a, a rich history that he communicated to me. Oh, wow. We obviously, I, I, I know that we both want to talk to you more about your your movement and the voice, but we are like in James territory and Spike territory now. So in, in keeping with the flow of the conversation, can we go and talk about your chemistry with James um, and and, you know, how that played out? I mean, the. I know, you know, you're both actors, you're very incredible actors, but the chemistry is really palpable. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us about finding your spike, you know, finding James and and also like your work together. Oh, thank you. Um, You know, from the moment he came in to his audition, it, you know, it was interesting. A lot of the other actors came in and they, they were wonderful actors, but we just had an immediate acting chemistry and all kinds of things happened in his audition that ended up making it into our first episode, the school heart episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really was one of those things that they call moment to moment acting where stuff just sort of surprises you and happens. So for instance, uh, one of the scenes for his audition was with the anointed one. And we had that moment where 
where we were sort of looking at each other and our heads rested like we might kiss. And, and at a moment, we said almost like, oh, yeah, we're talking to someone else, the anointed one. And we turned oh, yeah. out and <laughs> it, it was very cool. And, and, and that um, not only did it make it into the episode, but it ended up being a whole promo thing that the network used. They used us, our heads resting, our heads turning out, and then the, a voiceover that said, Evil has a few new faces. <laughs> it was nice. Gosh, I could I could like hear the WB voice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's let's before because I have you know a lot of questions for you about vampires and how how they love and if they can love. But let, before we get too carried away, because it's so easy to get swept into all that is Spike and Drew, um, let me take us back to. Your movement and your voice, those are two things that obviously are just massive parts of Drusilla. Uh, we have um, a host of our Angel podcast, uh, Angel on Top, LaToya Ferguson, and she texted us like, please, please, please ask Juliet uh, how she came to the accent. Like, what was that process? So maybe let's start there. Okay. Uh, that's a great question, LaToya. Um, <laughs> I definitely based it on someone specific. Um but the cadence and the sort of sing-song wafty uh, quality came really from the character choices. And so it was a combination of a, a person that I know from a specific region and then uh, got informed by Drew's own sort of personality um, so that it ended up sounding the way that it did with those two elements blended together. And you have a background in dance, in ballet. That's that's correct, right? Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, I found it such a uh, useful thing, and and definitely came into play with Drusilla and the way that she sort of wafted and uh, glided through space and 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 moved uh, was definitely you know uh, that that ended up being a, a big component of her. Yeah, and like, what a great synthesis too of like the the meeting of the the accent and like the way that you speak in the role and stuff and then the sort of fluidity of movement it's just like combining to make this like perfect fully formed super super memorable character uh just like brava (laughs) thank you It's true. It's sort of like Drusilla just never stops moving. Like she's just the most fluid uh, vampire and, you know, is is such a, as you know, better than anyone, is just such an iconic vampire in the Buffyverse. But I think overall that Drusilla is an iconic uh, contemporary vampire. And I I wonder if you have thoughts on, on that. Like what is it to occupy a character like Drusilla and to feel that like uh, adoration? and, you know, have people idolize the character? Is that something that resonates with you? Well, it's it's amazing in terms of the, the response is incredible. I mean, when you're working on it, you know, you're sort of inside inhabiting the character and you're trying to make it, you know, even uh, if you're working on a supernatural character, you're trying to make flesh out and make as human as possible, as relatable as possible. Um, it's just like the same thing with playing a villain, you, you know, a person who's 
does evil things doesn't necessarily think of themselves mm -hmm. as evil. So you get into the viewpoint of where they're coming from. Um, and obviously from the outside, that looks very different than their own rationalizations. Um, so uh, it, it's incredible because you're kind of, you're in this bubble of creativity and then to have people um, see what you're doing, echo the, the work that you're doing back to you in, in terms of how they're describing the character and what they're feeling from it um, is, is wonderful and really a, a kind of bonus from the experience that you're having being on the inside of it. Absolutely. And you, you talked about, you know, coming in school hard. That's your first episode as Drusilla. It's the first time we meet Drusilla. And having talked to, you know, various people from the show, we imagine you didn't know how long you were going to be Drusilla, uh, how long Drusilla was going to be in the universe. And so I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about, um, how, like, the finding out of the extension of that character's run and how many times she was going to reappear. And also maybe learning more about her backstory as you went along? I don't know if you knew everything about Drew that there was to know when you began. Well, it was interesting because I did know. It's funny, James, I guess, didn't know um, as much as I knew, which I didn't know <laughs> until later. Um, so, um, <laughs> it turns out I did know that we were going to be running through out season two, and then the characters were so popular that we, um, and, and Joss was... Um, creatively excited about the directions that the characters were going. And so we were kept on longer and longer. Um, I knew a lot of the backstory because of that meeting with Joss, where he told me what had been uh, the machinations that had been in his brain. But then along the way, there were certain things uh, like uh, the threesome with the immortal on Angel. Uh, I had no idea. I mean, it was really, uh, and I, I got the script. I remember uh, calling Julie Benz and saying like, I had no idea we did this. And she said, oh, I knew. I always knew something like that. And then she actually cited there's a there's a um, still picture of us from the episode I think it's the reunion episode where the car where the car where the whole car scene and I'm sort of hugging Julie and she circled it and sent it to me and my hand is actually one hand is holding her and hugging her and the other hand is actually sort of cradling her butt <laughs> and she went see I always knew this was happening <laughs> so, there were some surprises along the way yeah well I mean you know vampires we talk about vampires in in our podcast universe as fairly sexually fluid uh beings but I would love to hear you know your take on that you've been positioned sort of you know maybe maybe uh very pointedly in a throuple but we we just extrapolate and imagine that Angel Spike and Drusilla were also a throuple at some point so I wonder what your take is um you can correct me if I'm wrong by the way about that throuple but um no, no. I, I think you're right I think there was all kind of triangles going on there <laughs> Right. And do you think that vampires are just inherently um, sexually fluid beings? Well, I mean, I think it sort of depends on, on the universe, but I, mm. I think um, often, and I think, you know, you're also dealing with characters that have been alive for centuries and centuries and experienced and, you know, may fall in love across gender lines. And, and so it definitely seems like that happens in a lot of the vampire lore and makes sense. 
Yeah. I mean, especially with the connection between like feeding, you know, like feeding is especially in the Buffy verse, but I think in a lot of lore, um, a lot of vampire lore, the feeding is made to seem sexual in nature. Uh, And yeah, I mean, that's even, you know, initially with it, where the the vampire lore came from and you look at Bram Stoker and you look at um, all of that was sort of uh, during time when you couldn't explicitly talk about sex it was a way to Mm -hmm. have a sexual act penetration Mm -hmm. connection all of that in this other way of of dealing with it yeah okay speaking of uh love before penetration um (laughs) from just before do you from your perspective uh do you feel like drusilla was in love with spike and broader question do you think vampires are capable of love within the universe well, yes, absolutely. In terms of uh, Drew and Spike, I think they had an epic love affair. And I think it was monumental. I mean, how many people can say that they've been in a relationship for, I mean, 200 <laughs> years? <laughs> sustained sustained all, all of that. And I think there was uh, the thing that was lovely about it is, you know, clearly they had a, a sexual connection, but they also had a really sweet loving side as well, which I think uh, was evident between them. And he often was taking care of Drew when she would have her freakouts mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and all, all that kind of stuff. And they really seemed uh, to, you know, adore one another. Uh, it's it's funny because uh, my, my husband, Dev, and I, um, we ended up at one point watching all of Buffy and Angel again sequentially through because when I first had watched, I had watched it all, but because of some of the way that the episodes and when I was doing episodes, it, I didn't watch everything in its order. I had watched everything, but not um, all together in that way. And there was a moment where we were on the couch and it was the, the st- part of the storyline when, when uh, Spike is going for Buffy and I said, oh, I can't believe it. I mean, I was still sort of in the Drew mindset. Like, 200 years, why is he going with that cheerleader? And, and Deb looked up at me and he was like, So I don't think you can inhabit a character for so long and sort of not still have that, you know. Yeah, I definitely think that there, there was a, a, a deep love there. You, it's interesting too. We talk at this point in our conversation too. We've been talking a lot about Spike and Angel, and or not Spike and Angel. I should say Spike and Angelus, and like their distinct differences as vampires. And one of them is our belief, you know, that Spike is capable of love in a way that Angelus wasn't. And since you had, you know, relationships, Drusilla had relationships with both of those vampires. I would love to hear your thoughts on sort of the difference between the Angelus vampire and that love or lust or neither and spike well i think the angelus love was a very complex uh complex and complicated it it, it was really incestuous because he was a father figure Mm -hmm. and a lover and there was a lot of damage there the way that the relationship was forged was in violence and and madness and so um I think, I mean, if you're going to characterize one vampire love story as healthier than the other, uh, you know, 
considering there are people like, you know, there are beings that go out and feed on people and things like that. I would say that the spike relationship was a healthier give and take um, and, and a support of one another and, 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 and helping each other's needs. And the Angelus Drusilla was a more um, damaged and um, uh, dark uh, connection mm-hmm. and unhealthy, really. Yeah, we we actually we had a question from from a listener named Sandy who is a trauma therapist and was curious to know what it was like uh, for you playing a vampire with trauma. And Sandy also said uh, that you did an amazing job depicting that trauma bond with Angelus and the the support, the need for support from Spike to kind of like balance that out. Oh, well, thank you so much, Sandy. That that's amazing to hear. Um, I did a lot of research. I, I actually went to the Thalens Institute, which is part of Cedar sinai and uh, talked to a specialist in schizophrenia and uh, all kinds of stuff that I did uh, uh, in terms of researching the real elements uh, of that. And um, I think, Sandy, that you will really respond to A Place Among the Dead um, because it's all about how trauma affects one's choices going forward. So I think that that's going to be something that will really uh, speak to you in the work that you do. Before we get to uh, A Place Among the Dead, there's a couple of other um, questions. Some of them are are fun. Um, You know, if you have perhaps, like, do you have a favorite scene um, from from either series? You know, you you span, Drusilla spans the arc of Buffy and Angel. So is there a favorite scene that you have, a memory that you have of filming something uh, that just really sticks out from the pack? Um, in terms of, I would say I have three favorite episodes, um, the, the, not necessarily scenes, but the first episode, School Hard, because it was our introductory episode, so, and it was the first time uh, working together and working on the set, and it was just such a wonderful experience. I would say Surprise, because it's where uh, Drusilla gets strong and mm. in her full powers. Mm. Um, and then Reunion on Angel, because... Uh, it was pretty amazing to get to wreak havoc and team up with uh, Judy's character in Los Angeles and <laughs> do all kinds of fun stuff like yes. eating the lawyers and all of that. Getting set on fire, <laughs> eating the lawyers. So much excitement. Wow. Although, the funny thing about the fire uh, thing, if, if you're wanting a behind-the-scenes story, so we, we were shooting the sequence where... Um, Drew has already been burned and we uh, it's the whole uh, fire hydrant where the water comes yeah. spraying. Um, and we were shooting that downtown. It was one of the, LA doesn't usually get cold, but it was a very rare, crazy cold uh, night. We were shooting nights, of course, with <laughs> vampires. And so I think it was about, I don't know, 5 a.m. or something. And it was freezing. We were in parkas in between the takes. We, of course, had to take take them off. And we, Julie had a, a 104 <gasps> fever. She was sick. And I uh, was boasting, like, I never get sick when I work. And of course, I oh, no. got sick. And so we were all, we were sick. We were, it was freezing. Um, and we then had that thing where the water was supposed to come. And, and they said, oh, well, um, we're not going to rehearse it because we basically want, you know, uh, we, we're going to have to change you when you're wet and go into other clothes to pick up the shot again. And so... <laughs> 
we, uh, we, they, they yell action and they, and they sort of showed us a test of the water, which was like a small amount coming. And then they said, okay, and I'm, I'm crying through the scene. I'm no, I forget the dialogue, but I'm saying all this stuff and I'm crying. I've got tears and, and they're like, okay, and action. And for whatever reason, um, they boosted the water. So it was like a torrent. I mean, just pounds and pounds and pounds. And I'm trying to sit up straight with the torrent of water while weeping. And I'm so, you know, I have the dancer background. Don't ruin the take, get through the take. So I'm going through the whole take and going, oh, and crying and trying to just, and this water. And then they, we end the scene, they yell cut and everyone just burst out laughing because it was the most hysterical thing to be like trying to continue with it. They're like, okay, sorry about that. We need to lower the water. <laughs> so. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the things you don't know. Um, <laughs> no, we love behind the scenes stories. Of course, of course. Knowing what's going on in the background is uh, maybe one of the biggest joys of what we do. <laughs> Finding out the secrets. I can tell you another one that you guys might might enjoy. Um, when uh, when killing Kendra, we had the sequence of Drew in the confessional back in the 1800s scheduled sh- uh, to shoot right before the killing Kendra scene, and the nails, the Drusilla manicure, were very was you know a, a evident in the killing Kendra since I'm slicing her her throat with my nails, and obviously the character cannot have that manicure back in 1853. So <laughs> Todd McIntosh said, "Okay, there's no time with the schedule. We'll do the." sort of, you know, press on nails for you. And that way they can be featured in the scene and we won't hold production up with having uh, nail polish dry and all of that. So we go through, we shoot the confessional scene. We come in, we've got the press on nails. I've got the five inch heels that I'm in. Um, Bianca and I have worked out with the stunt coordinator, all of the fight choreography. Um, Everything's going, for whatever reason, she was supposed to kick me like, I'm holding my hands at a certain place and it's like mid stomach kind of area. The minute they yell action, for some reason, she is getting, oh, well, even before this, let me, let me go before this, before this, we're doing the part of the fight before the kick. And every time we're doing it, my nails are literally going like completely flying off and everybody's freaking out. Oh no, oh no, back to one. We have to fix this. How do we get the nails? And we're going again. I'm trying to keep my nails on. It's like, it's almost like a a joke because I'm holding my nails out and being like, okay, how do I do this with keeping these nails on? We go back and we're doing it. And then again, bing, 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 they're flying. Then we get to the kick part. And for whatever reason, I guess in the moment of action, Bianca got excited whatever happened i see the her boot instead of it coming to my mid torso where it's coming i'm like oh no it's coming toward my head you know how things go in solution. and i see her huge combat boot and she clunks me so hard in and I'm such a girly girl, like I've never been in a fight or anything like that. And so all of a sudden I, I see those little speckles and I'm thinking to myself, oh, you really do oh my see God. stars. <laughs> and again, oh I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to ruin the take, so I'm going to keep going. It made this huge sound and I'm thinking again to myself, I wonder if everybody heard that or if it's just loud wow. because of my head. And I, I grab her by the, the neck and I kind of look looked in her eyes very much like 
do not do that again. <laughs> like we have to focus here, right? And I back her into the, the, the wall and it's actually the take that's used because, because of the intensity of how I'm like, do not kick me. In. And um, I actually had a concussion. They had <laughs> oh to drive me God. home that night and everything. But they got the take. It looked great and it, it worked out well. And luckily in that one, the nails weren't <laughs> flying off. So. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Little did Kendra kn know that all she had to do was flick one of your stick on nails off and she could have right. escaped. It right? Exactly. She lived. <laughs> well, that is um, a perfect, perfect segue to a question from our listener, Havana. And, and really, I have this question too. We're just dying to know, you know, you're, uh, Drusilla has iconic manicures but there's two specifically there's black with white tips and red with white tips so which one do you like more what is your favorite of those two manicures for Trusilla? well you know it's interesting there's actually one episode where there's a third manicure which is blue Ooh. with white tips in the episode the chaos demon nice. uh, <laughs> where he's all slimy behind yes. james Bless his soul <laughs> <laughs> in that episode, Drew actually has blue with white tips. Um, but, you know, I, I really loved both of those manicures. It was interesting because the black with white tips is when Drew is weak and, and dying and not doing well. And then the red comes in when she regains mm. her strength. Um, and wow. so there, there was, you know, that's the, one of the things that was so great about working on Buffy is, you know, all those little details feed the actual character arc uh, mm -hmm. as well. So I guess I would say potentially the the red with white tips since it's strong Drew, although I like the black with white tips and I enjoyed the initial Drew too. So it's hard <laughs> for me to pick. What do you guys think? I, I'm partial to the, I mean, it's very hard to choose, but I'm partial to the red and I didn't even realize why, but perhaps it is because it's uh, a symbol of Drew's strength. Um, but I just love the red. <laughs> have you ever worn it? Uh, no, I have not, I have not done the Drew manicure yet. There's no way that I will make it till the end of this podcast without having at least yes, one Drew manicure. Next Halloween. <laughs> this is an oddball. This is like a, a wild question to contemplate from the outside anyway, uh, because you know, you so fully and completely embody the character of Drusilla. But we were wondering if you had to play a different character within the Buffy or Angelverse, if there was a character that you felt drawn to or, or interested in exploring. You know, I, I wouldn't trade Drew just because I, I found her so delicious <laughs> to play. And, um, you know, it's rare also, especially on television, to have such a complex and dimensional mm -hmm. character. Um, but I guess if I had to to pick another one, I would probably I would probably go for Buffy. I mean, the show is called Buffy the Vampire. <laughs> <laughs> so the actress in me would yeah. would like that, you know. So I think I'd go with I'd go with Buffy. It's true. I don't know that there's like any character really like juicier than Drew. Like there's just so much happening in Drusilla that it makes sense that you wouldn't want to trade her for Absolutely. anybody else. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. She, I mean, she literally almost had sort of Shakespearean qualities and you, it's, you don't get that unless you're doing Shakespeare. And so, you know, uh, there's an element of Ophelia or, you know, there's, uh, so yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty great. Yeah. Drusilla's lines are so iconic. Um, there's so many of them that I know that we would love to ask you about, but a listener did write in and I had the same question wondering, you know, there's a scene, I don't remember the episode. It's very, at the very beginning of Drew, she's looking up at the ceiling, uh, in the warehouse and she says, 
I'm naming all the stars. You can't see the stars, love. That's the ceiling. Also, it's day. I can see them. But I've named them all the same name. And there's terrible confusion. I'm sure that you've been asked this question before, but do you know what Drusilla named all of the stars? I think I'm trying to remember. I have I have my scripts and notes, and I'm sure I had something, but I think it was something like Genevieve. Nice. <laughs> like I just named them all Genevieve, and uh, oh, you know, I love it. it. Got a bit confusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you, um, Julia? Did you get to keep anything from a set from either of the um, shows? You know, you had obviously Drusilla is known for her dolls and Miss Edith especially, uh, but I wonder if you got to keep any clothing or the dolls or anything like that. Funny, I was offered all this stuff. I didn't. Ta- I'm not a collector person, so I didn't take it. Which uh, Dev is always saying, "Why? Why didn't you? Why didn't you take it?" Um, I do have a few things. I <clears throat> had been. There were a set of vampire teeth that I had been given to to work with at home, just because um, they're hard to work with. Uh, so I, I actually have those, and I have um, the hundred. Like the hundred episode, they actually gave us a stake that they engra- like a, engraved uh, a wood stake, and so I have that. Um, and I didn't keep Miss Edith. What was interesting with Miss Edith is that they had her scripted on, uh, as you know, the earlier episodes, and then later on some of the episodes that she reappeared, I actually had asked for her because she wasn't in the script, and I know on one of the episodes and they actually didn't have Miss Edith anymore so they had to recreate Miss Edith which did perfectly because she looked identical and and then I had my dolly back to stab her (laughs) eyes out and do all my (laughs) various activities uh and stuff but I actually have a funny story also about uh the vampire teeth so when I was I was home working on them uh and and talking and doing dialogue uh at the time of the show and I it was like two in the morning and I thought, oh, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take the garbage out and nobody's going to be around. It doesn't matter. I don't have to take the teeth out. (laughs) What's going to happen? So I went out to the garbage and I'm literally putting the thing in the bin and I hear this, hi, oh my gosh, I'm your new neighbor. I just wanted to come and say hi. And I was completely panicked because I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to scare this woman to death if I start talking and open my mouth. And so I literally put my ma- my hand up to my mouth and said, it's really nice to meet you. And I ran up to the house. And then I later told her, and she she thought it was quite funny, but she said, thank you so much. I, I would have actually had a heart attack if in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. I, I, I you know met you yeah. and you've had your teeth. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Lovely to meet the new neighbors. They only yeah. come out at night. Exactly. <laughs> Um, we have a, a what I think is a fun question from our listener, Fred, um, who wanted to know if Drusilla. So, you know, we have vampires with souls, with chips. We got vampires with all sorts of things in these universes. But Drusilla, um, if Drusilla was given a soul uh, akin to our Angelus angel, do you think that there would be somebody in particular from the Buffy verse or the angel verse who she would be drawn to, who she would most want to be friends with? Yeah, I think it's a friend, probably Xander. I think Xander and Drew. I mean, she, we did have that Halloween episode. I know everybody was going after Xander in that episode. But I think um, that Drew and Xander would be, have, you know, he could make his quick 
quips and she could make her slow non sequiturs and it would be a really weird, great conversation. Oh my God. Somebody give that to us, yeah. please. If you're a writer and you hear this, please give us a little Drew plus Xander being best friends chat. <laughs> Did you, Julia, you know, and maybe this is a question that will span um, past your work on Buffy, but uh, do, did you stay in character? Was Drusilla a character that you needed to stay in or did you just kind of snap in and out of it as the takes were going? Um, definitely did not stay in character. I think that would be pretty wild and scare everybody <laughs> in the crew. Um, I did often, actually unintentionally to some degree, James and I would find that we would stay in our dialects and in our accents and just stay kind of speaking that way, uh, almost unbeknownst mm -hmm. uh, to, to ourselves. I, I remember Brian Thompson, who plays the big blue uh, uh, guy in in uh, in the surprise episode was saying uh, when we saw him, I think somewhere a month or two later from our shoot date, was really surprised at how we spoke. Uh, I said, "Oh my God, wait, wait, wait! I'm this is weird." I talked like sixteen hours a day for you know the the whole shoot and and had no idea. Today's episode is brought to you by Regal Cinemas. If you're anything like me, you deeply enjoy going to the movies. Going to the movies is probably among my top three all-time activities. I love seeing films on the big screen. I also love being around other people who are watching the same movie with me at the same time. And of course, I love eating giant buckets of popcorn. If you feel the same and you like going to the theater, Regal Unlimited is something that just makes sense. Regal Unlimited is the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass. It pays for itself in two movie visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime, no blackout dates, no restrictions. When you want to watch a movie in 4DX or IMAX or RPX or ScreenX, there's so many ways to watch movies these days, your Regal Unlimited membership gets you into those premium experiences at a reduced cost. And with Regal Unlimited, you don't only save money on the tickets, you will also save on your snacks. And as previously mentioned, I love snacks. The only thing that can make me love a snack more is saving money on buying a snack. Members get 10% off of all non-alcoholic concession items with membership. Regal Unlimited, all you can watch movie subscription pass. It pays for itself in two visits. So if you're planning to see two movies this month, join Regal Unlimited and sign up now. You can sign up in the Regal app or on regmovies.com slash unlimited. Sign up for Regal Unlimited using code buffering and earn 10% off your three-month subscription. Please let us know about all of the movies you see and how the popcorn is. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. 
So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So Jenny, Jenny does not like when we get to this part of the um, interview where we say Jenny wrote a jingle for Drusilla's character. Uh, she likes to hide under the desk away from the attention. But uh, we don't know if you got a chance to hear it. Um, I w- would love to know what your thoughts are on the Drusilla jingle and the buffering the vampire we make- universe. Oh, God. I love it <laughs> so much. It's fantastic. <laughs> it is really, really phenomenal. Uh, thank you so much. We just we really love to honor characters that really, really resonate with us uh, so that Every time they do something we really love while we're talking about it within the episode, we can just trigger a jingle to be like, yes, Drusilla. Drusilla, you fill my heart with dread and still I'm led right back to you. It's perfect. It's perfect, perfect, perfect for Drew. <laughs> yeah, Drew. Somebody wrote in. Somebody wrote it and said, Jenny, that that they think Drusilla's jingle is the most on, wow. like the most spot on for the character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you definitely nailed it. For sure. Uh, thank you so much. You you put the, the nail in the coffin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our listener Annie wrote in to ask if you think that your character was a potential slayer before being sired, given that she was having prophetic visions, which is a precursor to um, being chosen a lot of the time. You know, it's it's interesting. I didn't have that viewpoint when I was playing it, but I think that it, it could make a lot of sense. What do you guys think about that? I think we both had a similar experience with the question. We had not thought of it either, but as soon as I read it, I was like, whoa. I'm actually, uh, you know, I, the comment came through on Instagram and, you know, you can like people's comments. And the the comment of that question had like upwards of 30 people Being just like, like wow. yes, oh my God, I never thought of this. Holy yeah. shit. And he also <laughs> said perhaps that's why Angel and Spike were both kind of like drawn to Drusilla in the first place, which makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense mm-hmm. too. Yeah, it all it all would make sense. I, now I need to check that with Joss. <laughs> right? He'll probably have the same response as all of us. Like, I didn't think of it, but yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the story writes itself, you know? <laughs> um, Julia, before we move to talking about your movie, um, something that I would really love to hear about from you is your interaction with uh, the Buffy fandom. You know, I think so many people from the show have done so many cons and interact and are just wonderful with the fandom overall and have such a great relationship. But I feel that yours is really um, so powerful. You know, we see you interacting with people one on one. Um, You're just so engaged. And I just would love to hear about that experience for you and maybe how it's changed over time too well the uh, Buffy fans are the best (laughs) I mean seriously the best everybody's so smart and um, interesting and um, fun and you know the other thing that's awesome is how everybody follows you from project to project once once they like your work from Buffy they are there for you and um, the conversations that you get to have it's it are really fascinating I mean it's just you couldn't have a better group of people and I, I've been really touched by how many people I've met and how many 
people have said that Buffy's gotten them through really hard times or been really influential or instrumental in their lives. Um, I have a, a dear friend, someone who's become a really dear friend who became a therapist uh, mm. because of Buffy and because of the character of Drusilla intrigued her. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that you um, hope to have an impact when you're doing uh, work um, uh, that, you know, I've, I've been able to see and, and have people talk to me about that is just incredibly powerful. And I think, I don't know, um, it does seem the more we talk to people who are involved in the making of the show that it is a product of like this symbiosis that happens because everyone Mm -hmm. who we've spoken to from the show also has this wonderful, open, kind uh, nature. And yeah, it just sort of seems like it has its own energy. Well, the show wouldn't have been what it was without the community. And it is like we're all connected in that. And so, um, and, and, and you know, as an artist, you do stuff that you hope speaks to people. And if you have that and you get to, to uh, interact, it's, it's just really amazing. Thank you for giving us uh, Drusilla. Yeah. I, I, I truly, yes. I, I can't. I mean, I think, yeah, Drusilla changed the landscape, <laughs> really changed the game for the vamps out there. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. I, I, You know, I like to say sometimes that it was obscenely fun to play <laughs> Drew because it was going to work every day. You know, it, it was incredibly creative and all of the people were so wonderful and you know it, it's not a, a bad day's work when you're kissing James and kissing David <laughs> you're like oh my god my job is just so so hard <laughs> you <know>? yeah did <laughs> so. you ever get like uh injured from those cheekbones of James's you know did they ever <laughs> it's funny you say that because we did <clears throat> we actually did a, um a thing once at Reed and Con where they had us do a sort of improv where I was Spike and he was Drew. Oh my God. And what was funny is I took, so James is totally, we're, he's in the green room and he's totally laid back and just like, oh yeah, I'm going to wing it. And I was Googling and looking up <laughs> clips of, of Spike because obviously I'd always been inside the scenes from Drew's perspective. So I'm like, let me, let me look at Spike and so I can nail his mon- mannerisms. And so I was doing the Spike walk and I was doing his, like everything, and the way he stand, stand, uh, stands, and I was doing, uh, I kept sort of referring to my cheekbones and making, like, pecking in my cheeks and, and doing his accent, <laughs> saying the cheekbones. And it was just really, like, it was, it was very fun. Everybody was laughing, and, it, and, and James was, like, mirroring me with his cheekbones. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know? and so, oh, my God. Is there yeah, footage we, of we have this to find anywhere? Video. I would pay good money to see this role <laughs> reversal improv. Holy shit. I don't think so. It was funny, too, because at one point we actually sat down on, there was a couch, and then we realized there was a window there, and we were like, ah! <laughs> so it was sunlight. <laughs> so it was just... <laughs> it was... It was actually a fun and, and fluid experience, but oh. I don't think any film of it. But he was, uh, he kept trying. He was like, I don't think I captured Drew as well. And I was like, well, you weren't studying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he should know by now. He's worked with you long enough to know that he's got to do his research to step up. <laughs> Well, it's funny you said that because uh, when we we were doing an interview for TV Guide and it was James, uh, myself, and David, and they were asking about me on set, and David said, "Oh, you know, she brings because I sometimes bring a 
at that point, it was not an iPod yet. It was a Walkman, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I brought my music and would sometimes, you know, because I like to create a soundtrack for mm. each character. And, mm. and so he started sort of moving around. You guys can't see me, but sort of moving around in a Drew-like way, saying to the reporter, this is Juliet on set. Can we run lines? Can we rehearse? Can we run lines? Can we rehearse? Can we run lines? Can we rehearse? 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 <laughs> so, um, so they printed that. <laughs> is the um, existence of Drusilla's playlist, is that public, on public record? Is that something that we can find somewhere? No, I always, it's, it's, it's interesting. I do it for every character. And it's when I'm working on a character, I put music together when I was just on, um, uh, Bosch uh, playing Rita Tedesco. I had her soundtrack right now. I'm actually going back to do uh, a recurring role on Claws, which I started mm. just before quarantine and we're now picking back up again. Um, and so every character has a separate soundtrack and Drew's, you know, I know what it is, but but it hasn't it hasn't been uh, published anywhere. <laughs> love it. I love it. You, you know, keep you got, like, like an Italian yeah. grandma, you got to keep the, yeah, you got to keep that recipe the secret. Recipe. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it is. <laughs> It's like, and it's funny because, um, you know, and everything's different. Like a particular character can be, a, you know, it can be classical music from mm. all different kinds of music and whatever speaks to me for that character. I sort of put together as, as a thing. And, and what's great about it is then you're on set and you, when you just hear it, you're automatically mm. back in character. It, it's funny because I, I pass that on in the rehearsal process for our film to a lot of the actors. And so on my set, it was funny because a lot of the actors had their earphones in and we're doing, I was, oh my God, I've created this uh. Frankenstein's. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but it's really a, a wonderful thing. And the, the funny thing is to this day, when I hear any of the pieces that mm. are Drusilla thing, I all of a sudden feel like, wait, I'm supposed to start talking about Drew. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to be careful if I'm in public and, and one of the music comes on that I don't, you know, start uh, talking to uh, anybody else in in, in speak? <laughs> oh, okay. So, listen. You have created a movie called A Place Among the Dead, and I would love to start with you at the beginning of that project um, because there are so many layers to mm -hmm. the project, uh, and I just would love to know where this began. Like, where? Like, what was the moment when you knew you had mm -hmm. to make this film? When you knew you wanted to make this film? Well, I wanted to make a movie about the repercussions of growing up under the sway of narcissism and evil. And my husband, Dev, and I both come from this background, and we wanted to make a movie that we had never seen before and talk about something that we haven't seen in films before. And actually, that isn't really talked about in society as a whole. Um, I, I wanted to use genre to make an entertaining movie, uh, but also to lull the audience into a sense of safety to explore unsafe ideas. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because narcissism and evil are obviously abound in our society. Uh, things seem to be escalating mm -hmm. and escalating right now. Um, the thing that's, that's interesting is if you Google uh, narcissism, there are 9,120,000 YouTube videos. There are 70,400,000 Google results. If you look at psychological abuse, there's 188 million Google results. So obviously people 
are searching for it, are wanting to talk about it, are, are needing to talk about it. Um, and so that really was the inception of, of, of the process. Did you know at the outset, because the film, and you know, I know that a, a lot of our listeners are going to watch it, so I'm, I won't spoil anything too deeply, but there is sort of like a format shift um, in the film. And did you know that you were going to do that from the jump or was that part of the creation? Did that come to you during the making of it? Yes, um, we actually knew all along it's you know deci- decided to sort of make the movie as a it's completely scripted entirely scripted even the oh, interviews mm. are scripted um which is cool that you guys do <laughs> no not at all not at Very all effective. <laughs> um we wanted to do a meld of fact fiction and the fantastical and and blur the lines of, of reality and and use that to make the movie as experiential as as possible Mm. yeah it's like very immersive and like you said like all Mm -hmm. of these interview segments that are sort of like cut in throughout the duration of the film I totally thought I 100% had no idea those were scripted and it's so cool uh to to be hearing from folks like Joss and Rice like talk about uh a genre luminary uh, Gary Oldman, who of course played mm-hmm. Dracula in the 1992 uh, adaptation mm-hmm. film adaptation, amazing uh-huh. to see all of all of these. Oh, Charlene Harris, who created uh, the books that uh-huh. that uh, True Blood ultimately was was based on. I mean, you really you really uh-huh. got quite a, an incredible roundup. Every every person has a tie to the the vampire genre, and they all play alter ego versions <laughs> of themselves, and so. You know, in scripting them, we really captured the views of each person uh, and worked with them on it uh, when we were doing when we were doing that. So cool! So that that process even was was collaborative to a point. Yes, absolutely. And and what what was interesting about the movie is, you know, it it uses the first person and the third person what I was saying, sort of about it being experiential, and what you were talking about about it being immersive is, you know. I um, wanted the viewer to experience it, like be a lot of the time in my alter ego's perspective, Mm. in Jules' perspective, and to feel, you know, it was interesting. Dev and I talked about the fact that we'd never heard a voiceover in a movie that sounded remotely like the thoughts running through our minds. Mm. And so, uh, and, you know, we really wanted to look at where those thoughts come from and how so much of of the, the messaging from when you're, young becomes these voices that inform your choices going forward and can lead to very destructive choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought those the the voiceover the sort of like stream of consciousness uh repetitive invasive thoughts uh all of those sections were really I mean intense and like and like unlike <laughs> I think there's one other place where I've where I've experienced something in the same like sort of uh, general ballpark which is an episode of bojack horseman called stupid piece of shit which is all 
it's also oh. based on like sort of like invasive repetitive thoughts and like um this man who is like mm -hmm. a depressed alcoholic talking himself through his own like negative cycle bojack is like a, an incredible show and that episode is one of one of the best it's like a beautiful piece of art so to like see something really similar here was was very cool and also like very effective because who among us doesn't have those thoughts like echoing in our heads from whoever said them or eventually they Everybody. just turn into your own voice like uh over time you know Exactly. And it, that's the thing. And it becomes unrelenting. And, and it's, it's interesting with that because uh, we did, you know, uh, sneak peeks just before lockdown mm -hmm. when we finished the movie and the response was so beautiful and powerful uh, from the entire audience every time, not only stayed afterwards to talk about the movie, but they stayed for like two hours mm. then sharing intensely personal stories. I mean, one of the things that is interesting when we were doing uh, some research on this is it, it turns out that 80% of the thoughts in everybody's minds, even if you come from the most healthy upbringing ever, Whoa. are negative. And that's a pretty interesting statistic. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, how, how we all talk to ourselves. And then, you know, how, you know, and the whole point of the movie is, you know, we may, you might we all come from varying degrees of things, but it's, it's that the, you can keep going on that path and making destructive choices, which, you know, my, my alter ego uh, seems <laughs> to be doing in the movie, or, you know, as an adult, you, you can make a different choice and you can make a different life for yourself. And that's really what, you know, what we're talking about with the film. Yeah. You start the film, you know, we're talking, we've now dipped our toes into things like upbringing and you begin the film very pointedly with photos of yourself as a child and of your parents. And so I wonder if you want to talk about that um, specifically, the, the choice to use those images and how that folded into the film. Yes. Um, I mean, I chose to make the movie exceptionally personal. Uh, as they say, the more personal, the more mm -hmm. universal. Mm. Um I, I really use the parents as a device uh, because I, I want the viewer to do the same. I want the person watching to become a participant. And I, I want to give voice to what has affected many. And the whole purpose of the film, besides being an entertaining movie, is to open up a dialogue and to provoke mm -hmm. conversation. Um, you know, what I think is interesting is that the parents appear for 44 seconds in the entire 76 minute movie. But the metaphor of that is that they're a small part of one's life. Like you spend a, a, some years in your, in, in, during when you're being raised, right? And then you spend all these other years of the rest of your life succumbing to some of that unless you make a, a decision and, 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 and make some changes in, in sort of letting that operate you. Yeah. That's incredibly powerful. Also, because forty six seconds, you know, I would have, I would have thought that they, that they were more present in the film. So the immersive element yeah. of that was very effective as a yeah, viewer. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, because you know, and I did. It's, it's funny that you're talking about because I really wanted the movie, um, you know, there the, that thing. I don't know about with you guys, but you know what your thoughts are like. But you know, when you're on a negative spin, it isn't. Uh, relenting like I didn't want to put music under it I didn't want to put yeah. sound effects because it's like there is nothing else mm -hmm. when you're having those kind of negative thoughts there is you know you're not 
hearing and seeing and, and in the world in its full proper glory, you're kind of in this one section of really your false self and this, you know, false identity and these negative things. And so, um, so it was interesting because I played with uh, different, different elements of that. And, and you guys would know, actually, in terms of the um, uh, Harry Groner, who played the mayor in Buffy, he and his wife, Dawn, are the parents voiceover Whoa. in the movie. You know, I see, yeah, I saw, I saw, I didn't see Dawn's name, but I saw Harry's name in the credits. So it was after I had watched it and was like, oh, holy shit. <laughs> so incredible. It was really great. And it was funny when we were recording that stuff uh, because we, we recorded probably, I'd say a, maybe like two and a half hours straight of these all different sort of thoughts uh, that we had scripted. And afterwards, we all were sitting there for a minute and everybody was quiet and <laughs> sort of very dark. And, and, and Harry was like, Yes, let's crack it open and, and have, let's have some positive talk right yeah. now. <laughs> well, it's like, oh, a precursor to 2020. Yeah. <laughs> um, so touching on touching on like parent child relationships i think is going to be charged in one of any number of ways for just about everybody like we all have re either relationships to our parents or relationships to uh you know the the idea of parentage and and like what those relationships can can be like and and last you know, how they may uh, go on to affect you over the course of your entire life on the mm -hmm. sort of like flip side of that coin in terms of like important relationships you worked on this film with your partner dev and we were kind of wondering you know is this the first time you two have worked on a project like this together what was that like he also appears in the film my guess would be that it would be like awesome to have your partner there to for you guys to sort of like be leaning against each other at the same time over the course of making this it, it's not the first time we've actually we did two short subjects we did something called uh take flight which was all about gary oldman's mm. creative process and then we did a, a short documentary called dream out loud that we, where we interviewed guillermo del toro and ryan johnson who mm. directed a Wars the Last Jedi and and uh, Knives oh, yeah. Out recently and then also Jordan Levitt was in that. Um, I mean, we absolutely love collaborating together. We have very different strengths. Mm. Um, Dev is a, a cinematographer and a stills photographer, and so he has a very strong visual background. And I'm as a performer have a very strong sort of acting and emotional background. And and and. Even in, in life, we sometimes make a joke and say we make one <laughs> terrific person. <laughs> so, um, so it's pretty great. And and also, you know, with this project, we were essentially almost on a on, on a mission. We wanted to to ha have this creative venture. Um, we wanted to make it really to open up uh, a dialogue. And so, and, and it's interesting because the response that we've gotten in terms of what people are saying is that it's, you know, a, a genre bending art film and that it, it, what you were saying sort of in terms of the immersive mm -hmm. aspect of it. And so I think for both of us, it, um, you know, we compiled both of our experiences for some of the elements that are the factual elements in, in the film. And um, it's been, a, a, a real journey in terms of everything that we've learned and the process together. And, you know, just in general, he's the best 
partner ever. And he's, um, he, you know, we both feel so fortunate to have discovered what love really is and that love is having someone's back and them having yours and what that really means when someone wants the best for you um, was a discovery for us. And I think that's present in the film. And it, sometimes it almost seems miraculous in, in a non-religious sense that, that you know, we were able um, to, to have this kind of relationship, not having been shown it in any way. So it's, it's great. I mean, it's just, you know, the workload has been sure. insane. Um, <laughs> We basically don't have a house, you know, and, and while sleeping, we'll roll over and say, I have this idea, <laughs> which I'm sure, you know, doesn't happen with other partnerships because people restrain themselves from calling someone at, you know, five in the morning yes. or four. Uh, so it, it has uh, all of that aspect, but, but it's, uh, we really do um, bolster up each other's strengths in, in a, in a, you know, exceptional way, I think. It's so powerful to be able to, you know, not only have that support within a relationship, but then to be able to use that to create together. You just made me think of this um, Greek myth. It's sort of a creation myth. It, it's about like how uh, in the beginning, humans had two heads and four legs. And then the gods were like, this is too good. They've, they've one human has has it all and we can't abide that. So the gods split all the people into two-legged, one-headed humans, uh, thus kind of like cursing them to be forever seeking their soulmate in, in order to find like that perfect partner who makes them whole, which is just kind of what you made me think about while you're talking about Dev, which is very sweet. You make one really oh, great person together and we should all be so lucky. <laughs> Well, we we say that and we actually sometimes wonder like is that is that not a good thing it two of us to make you know but even so for like for instance dev is dyslexic so and i am like or so so he thinks very outside of the box and i'm very sort of or so we sort of pull it together and it ends up working but that myth mm -hmm. is amazing i've actually never heard never heard that and it's uh it it's quite a moving yeah. myth yeah tying together a bit of buffy and um this movie, this film, A Place Among the Dead, a lot of the film is set in Santa Barbara. And we um, have uh, many listeners in Santa Barbara, uh, the former mayor of Santa Barbara, who gave us a tour of the city and said, this is Sunnydale. Santa Barbara is Sunnydale, right? And obviously, you know, in the um, series, we get a lot of B-roll of Santa Barbara. So I'm wondering if there was like a conscious connective tissue there or if a lot of people just live in Santa Barbara. <laughs> No, you know what? They, they didn't live there. We we said it there, um, not because of that, but and and not with its tie to Buffy. But it's an added bonus because in terms of the the meld of the fact and the fiction and the fantastical, it's, it's another layer of the sort of uh, blurring of the lines and the crossover that actually mm -hmm. is really interesting. Um, um, that. Now I'll say, oh yes, that was totally <laughs> so intentional. That. That's just amazing. <laughs> so. Well, and there's there's another moment in the film. I mean, obviously, I, I think that the film 
is threaded through your your previous work and characters yeah. and, and things in many ways. But there was one moment that came to mind when we were just talking where the mother of one of the victims says to you, like, how could you do that? How could you play like Juliet? How could you play these characters <laughs> mm. that um, bring like death and, and sort of like, you know, make this glamorize, glamorize it? Exactly. Mm. And so I'm, I would love to hear you talk about that, like in- including that and what you think about that, because you you are the Juliet who has played those characters. <laughs> it, it's an interesting thing. And it's something actually in terms of that, that uh, I first thought about, and it's one of the reasons we included it in, in the film. And uh, I thought about it uh, when, when I was shooting Buffy, I remember a friend of mine saying, oh, oh gosh, I really love the work that you're doing. And when I see Sp- like Spike and Drew, they're so cool. Like, I really want to spend time with them. And I was like, well, you wouldn't because you're human, you know, like, uh, but she said, like, she started, we, we had a whole discussion about the nature of that and how, how, you know, what, what is that in terms of, are we, and then, you know, but the thing with also fantastical characters is certainly you know, they're not real. Vampires are not real. Sorry, anyone who thinks they are. <laughs> In my perspective. Sorry to vampires <laughs> and also. Sorry to the vampires. Sorry to the vampires listening. Uh, but, um, you know, and so you are dealing with a fantasy world. Um, and, you know, in, in our film, the character, uh, there's a character that you're not sure if he indeed is a vampire or he's a serial killer. Either way, the same sort of uh, traits apply. I mean, for, for me, the idea was the metaphor, you know, the vampire is the, the perfect metaphor for the ultimate narcissist, draining mm. you completely mm. for its and so, um, you know, so we're, we're not glamorizing it in, in the, the movie, but, and, you know, if you're playing a, often, you know, a villain or something, you're not glamorizing it. In terms of Buffy, you know, you are dealing with a fantasy universe. So it is something that is, isn't uh, threatening in that way. It isn't encouraging, you know, real um, bad acts. Uh, one of the reasons Joss said he made the vampires have the vamp face when they were feeding and when Buffy, so that to be really clear that these are demons, you, you didn't want a high school girl going around and killing, even if it looked like mm-hmm. humans, you know? And so he wanted to dis- make it distinctive, like these are demons and she is doing, you know, she's fighting on the side of, of good and she's not doing something, you know, that, that is evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've, We've had so many conversations, uh, and I know as we begin season six, we're going to be having oh so many more um, about that, about the um, idolization of, you know, Spike, Drew, Angelus, and, you know, Spike specifically as a character that we know, having talked to James, you know, it was like, why do you still like this guy? Like, what does he have to do to make you understand that, like, at the end of the day, he is a vampire? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Obviously, I'm still in that somewhat of that connection to Drew because I'm like, yes, but that's why Drew and Spike have such more of a healthy relationship than Buffy and Spike. <laughs> 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 I'm still championing for that. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because two demons being together is much better than a demon and a human. <laughs> I mean, I think you have a solid point, although I'm not sure where the metaphor will <laughs> land us. But I think it makes sense to me on paper. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
So um, a listener wrote in to us to ask um, about a place among the undead, because the name of the film is A Place Among the Dead. And uh, can you talk to us about the various projects that you're yes. working on? Yes, absolutely. So so this, A Place Among the Dead, is our scripted feature film. And I know it's confusing because at one point we actually were calling our other project A Place Among the Undead, which was the least smart idea we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we thought like, oh, it's cool. There's an overlap. And it was like, no. Um, so it has now evolved uh, to become a series and it's called the Undead mm. Series. Mm. And it is a completely different project. It has a lot of the same talent came to work with us again, plus Tim Burton and Willem Dafoe. It's all documentary. It's all unscripted. And that is the Undead Series. And this is A Place Among the Dead, which is a scripted narrative film and uh, stars myself and has Gary Oldman, Ron Perlman, Robert Patrick, Lance Henriksen, Joss Whedon, and Anne Rice appearing for the first time ever wow. in a movie. And by the way, actually, we also have Kay Oldman, who is Gary's mom, uh, appearing uh, uh, in a movie for the first time. She has always wanted to be an actress. Ah! She's amazing. Plays the nun, oh, wow. the nun in the movie. She yeah, was she so rocks. Good. The nun rocks. Yeah, she's phenomenal. Yeah, the nun was like one of my favorite characters in the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, and so it was so cute because basically she sort of she's had always wanted. She sadly has has passed away. Oh. Um, and it, it's she, this is actually her last sort of thing, and she got to do it uh, on screen, and she was so amazing, and it was so cute because Gary lobbied for her to do the part, saying she's always wanted to be an actress. She was incredible. He drove her to set. He was running lines with her. Oh my it was god! Adorable. And she didn't. She was so cute because I would say, "And action," and she would go, "Are we going to have a go?" <laughs> And then I would say, yes, okay. Every time that I say action, we're going to have a go. And then I'd go, action. She had, no. no. I'd be like, yes, yes. Every time I say action, we're going to have a go right then. Right. And action. So, so we're going we're gonna to have a go oh now. <laughs> so, it's very cute. Oh, <laughs> she was, she was and, marvelous. Truly, she was yeah. so wonderful. That's incredible. You know, I think that there are so many uh, things that we could talk about about the film, but I'm wondering if if there's anything that you want to talk about specifically that we haven't brought up, that we haven't asked, uh, that you want people to know before they go into watching the film. Well, I just I, I'm really excited about um, Modern Films, uh, which is a female based distribution mm -hmm. company. And they are doing their first worldwide release with us. They usually are UK and Ireland. They have incredible taste in movies. They um, uh, just released Werner Herzog's new film. Werner Herzog directed um, Rescue Dawn with Christian Bale, among many other brilliant movies. And they're releasing Viggo Mortensen's wow. directorial debut. Wow. They are um, really excited about this movie. And we've crafted a release plan that is traditional and we're doing all the traditional press and all of that stuff but we're also doing these incredible events where we get to talk to people directly which is what we want with this film and so um, on October 29th we have the worldwide virtual premiere it's being sponsored by Matt Cosmetics and New York Comic Con and the cast will be attending and then on October 30th we have Halloween Among the Dead which is a virtual preview screening event. It's very Buffy-centric. It's Star Fury oh, cool. that we're doing it with, oh, and it has a lot of 
Oh, Harry Groner will be there as well as myself. Um, on October 31st, Tomorrow's Ghost is uh, having a preview screening event. It's very music and goth centric and it's an expansive Halloween theme program. And then on October 30th, we have our premium video on demand run at U.S. Uh, Lemley theaters all across the U.S. and in practical theaters wherever is possible. Right. And then starting November 9th, the film will be hosted on the Modern Films website and in virtual theaters across the world. So, so starting October 29th, um, virtually everybody can come and see the movie. And um, I would love to give you the link for tickets if that if that works. Yes, absolutely. We'll put the link in our show notes here and share it on social media as well, so that everybody can uh, find it and get to it because I know that they're going yes. to want to. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so the, the website, it's modernfilms.com slash a place among the dead. Right. That's where the tickets for all of the above are, are, uh, are awesome. available. Oh, incredible. Incredible. Julia, before, before we end this wonderful conversation that we, of course, never want to end, we thought that with Halloween right around the corner, um, with you having a movie release right around the bend, that we would ask you if you have a favorite scary movie. Ooh, <laughs> I think I might have to go with some classics. I think mm. The Shining. Uh, I think there's a movie called Don't Look Now that's with Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie and is really, really scary. Uh, again, kind of more psychologically scary. Um, and then, you know, our movie has been likened to Donnie Darko, mm -hmm. uh, Eraserhead, Black Swan. Somebody said uh, mm -hmm. it's described as a, a David Lynch home movie or Black Swan with a message. <laughs> and those are all <laughs> incredible uh, movies that I, I love Aww. as well. So it's hard to, it's hard to pick one, but, uh, but those are some goodies. Yes. Well, and I feel like the, the, the type of scary movie is very clear based on your, your choices. There's a lot of psychological thrilling yeah. happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I usually, uh, yeah, I'm drawn to. In terms of, you know, it's one of the things that's interesting with the genre that you can, again, like with Buffy, high school is a nightmare. You can talk about things in a way that isn't hitting people mm -hmm. over the head, that isn't going so directly at something. And I think that that's a, a, a wonderful way to get to talk about things and, and use art and entertainment to talk about things. Yeah. Ah, Juliet, thank you so much. Good luck with the next few weeks of prepping for all that is to come. Um, and of course, if you're listening, uh, we'll put all of the things you need to know in the show notes um, so that you can watch the film and um, follow Juliet and all that you do, because I know that this is uh, one among many projects and, and I'm sure you have many more to come. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. It's been so much fun hanging out with you guys today. I've just really enjoyed this conversation so, so much. Thank you. Thank you for being here with us. And thank you for bringing us uh, Drusilla and Yes, thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. And look forward to our next right chat. Yes, same. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Drusilla, you fill my heart with dread. And still I'm led right back to you What if you discovered you could move between the worlds of dreams and real life? That's the story of Dream Breachers, where Evan wakes up on his 12th birthday and realizes that something he dreamt about the night before had actually happened. 
with the help of his friends, a reappearing stranger, and a mysterious organization called the Dream Academy, Evan will discover what it means to be a dream breacher. Dream Breachers is a high-stakes sci-fi mystery adventure about the highs and lows of having all your dreams come true and is perfect for kids ages 8 to 12. If that sounds like a dream to you, you're in luck. You can listen to Dream Breachers now, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>